Welcome to Homebase Hope, all about autism, the show that invites you to think differently, inspires you to take a whole child approach, and most of all, instills hope when it comes to your child and autism. I'm your host, Rhiannon Crisp, from homebasehope.com.au. Let's get into it. Hi guys, and welcome back to another episode of Homebase Hope, all about autism. Today we're talking toileting. We're talking wheeze and poos and all those things we don't tend to talk about once our child has passed the toddler stage. But the reality is that for some parents, and probably you guys who are tuning in today, toileting can be a problem. Whether your child is old enough to be using the toilet but will still only do a poo in their nappy, whether your child is of school age and they're still wetting the bed, or whether they seem to have constant constipation or diarrhea. Well, this is the podcast for you. So today we are chatting to Diet Collis. Diet is an occupational therapist with 30 years experience working with children and families. She works in private practice on the Sunshine Coast specializing in toileting issues. She has authored a range of clinical resources, including The Adventures of Plopsy the Pooh. Dai also regularly delivers parent and carer information workshops on pondering poos and wandering wees. Now, I first heard about Dai about four or five years ago when I attended an online professional development workshop, and I was blown away with her knowledge on the topic. So that's why I've invited her here today, and it's my pleasure to have her talking with us. So welcome, Dai. Thanks, Rhiannon. Now, let's jump into it. Let's um, jump into that time machine, and I would love to know a little bit about what has led you to becoming so passionate about helping kids with toileting issues. <laughs> well, it came about quite by accident, really. Um, in my first ever job, um, it was in the children's hospital, and they said, oh, and by the way, you can be working you know, with kids with poo problems. So I just sort of landed there, and... Um, Perhaps every job since wherever I've been, they've said, oh, by the way, can you help the kids here with toileting problems? So it's just followed me around. Um, But I continue to find it really rewarding. I think it's so important. And um, it continues to be really challenging. It is just, it's not easy. So, um, yeah, I continue to just have a lot of interest um, in it and um, try and keep up reading everything that's going on uh, just to kind of, I think it's an important area to be to be working in. Absolutely, because yeah. it can affect so many different parts of a kid's life, can't it? So, yeah. absolutely essential. So, let's start at the beginning, and I'd love for you to talk a little bit about typical child development and when most kids um, start to become aware of wee and poo and what age they might start becoming interested in toileting. All right. Well, I think toileting, just like every other developmental skill, like learning to walk, um, there's a great deal of variation in the age when children are ready for toilet training. But most experts agree that readiness signs start appearing somewhere between two and two and a half years of age. And these readiness signs include language, um, especially being able to understand instructions and follow instructions. There's motor control, being able to get to the toilet or the potty, being able to sit with enough balance, being able to manage your clothes, so gross motor and fine motor skills. There's body awareness. Um, This is particularly important, I think. Um, 
We see a lot of children who might be really ready in all other areas of development, but they have some differences in their sensory awareness. So some kids um, uh, lack awareness of what's going on in their bodies and other kids have so much awareness that they get distracted by what's going on. Um, and finally, kids have to be emotionally ready. They have to be willing to um, cooperate and they need to just feel that it's, re- you know, they are ready. And as well as all those factors in the children, I think there are parent readiness factors as well. So a parent needs to have the time and the patience because it will not be a smooth road usually. So there are parent and child factors. And it's quite interesting in the last 50 years, there's been a six-month shift in when toilet training occurs. So, um, yeah, so that's why we'll get advice from grandparents and how they did things is actually quite different to how parents nowadays do things. And we think that's because um, we now think more about being child-led rather than let toilet training be led by the child, whereas a generation or so ago, Toilet training was parent-led, so, you know, parent decided, let's go, and and off they went. And there's a lot of factors in there, different um, nappy technology has changed and um, parents' lifestyles, mum's lifestyles, work working commitments has changed a lot. So I think that's very interesting that there's been, a you know, a whole six-month shift in, in toilet training time. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. That is a massive shift because for a child so young, six months is a massive chunk of their life isn't it it is it is and some people kind of say and there's a window some people say well if you leave it too long some studies have shown that kids who are toilet trained later take longer and have more problems but I don't think that's necessarily because the parent left it too late there were probably factors in the child's readiness that meant it wasn't possible till later and those some of those factors might continue on so it's a it's a it's an interesting topic and then there's questions about and how much can we do to make kids a little bit more ready? And I think that can apply for kids with developmental issues. And, and with all those readiness signs, yeah, that's a chronolog- chronological age. You know, when they're actually two and a half, they might be ready. But if their development isn't at two and a half, you know, we're saying when they're developmentally at that level. So if their language is delayed or other areas are delayed, so, of course, will toilet training. Yeah. That's super important knowledge there isn't it so if they are behind in that emotional development the language um yeah their motor skills their balance um you know core strength being able to sit on the toilet that is going to affect their ability to go to the toilet absolutely and i think the other readiness factor is physiological um readiness and i kind of think about that in terms of kids who've had a rough start We've had issues, and we'll talk about that later, with constipation. Um, their bodies may not be physiologically ready to, and um, we have to concentrate on them being ready in that physical, internal kind of, the way the internal organs are working. So if I see a child has had a history of constipation since they were 18 months or something, we won't expect them to be taught trained for six or 12 months later than, than other kids. So that also puts the goalposts back. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, let, we'll jump into that in a minute. So, first, I wanted to touch on when should parents start becoming concerned if their child isn't toileting? Is is there an age or developmentally what should we be looking for? Because it can be very stressful for parents who are seeing all the other kids who are starting to toilet train, and 
it's super difficult for them to get their child to do that um, because it's not something that can really be hurried along too much. We can't force them to go to the toilet. If they, if they don't want to pull on the toilet, we can't make them. Um, what, what age or when should we start getting a bit concerned if they're not toileting? Yeah, I think um, I find a lot of parents um, and the general community uh, looking at toilet training happening by three years of age. But in fact, speaking really generally, um, up until four years, I think is quite okay. I wouldn't be getting alarmed if it takes till then. That's we're talking about bowel. Um, if kids are having wee accidents, that can happen quite normally up till the age of five. And night dryness, we're not worried about that till the age of seven. And I do find that community expectations are much lower than what we we are comfortable with. So generally speaking, I would not get too concerned until a child is four. But there are a couple of exceptions. If a child is experiencing pain or discomfort or a lot of stress, then I think that you need to do something a parent should do something, look into that, yes. So, you know, if that's happening, um, that's an exception. So if there's even if there's a child who's 18 months old, um, sure, they're not ready to be toilet trained, but they should certainly be getting some help with those physical issues. Okay. Yeah. So you're saying around four for um, poos, they should start to be using the toilet for poos around four? And five for wheeze, controlling wheeze during the day, and then at night time, not until seven. Yes, correct. Right. the wee at night. Okay, good. Okay, so let, let's start with poo. Um, okay. Let's talk all about poo. I want to know the different types of poo. Um, you know, what's the best kind? What's the worst kind? Um, there's the Bristol stool scale out there, which gives us a great indication of what to look out for. Um, so I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. All right, so yeah, there's a really handy resource called the Bristol Stool Scale that classifies poos um, on a number scale and also gives them names. Um, there's a children's version that you can um, Google that and find that. Um, the most desirable type of poo is one that's referred to as a sausage, and that's fairly self-explanatory, um, or corn on the cob. So they're formed, they might have a little bit of... Um, crackled appearance uh, but having said that the poo should not be so big that the child has to really strain to go and um, it shouldn't take more than a few minutes for them to go once once they're relaxed and, and the process has started yeah okay sausage food yeah yeah okay so what about the not so good kinds of foods all right so at the two extremes on that scale, at the um, the top end of the scale, number one is referred to as rabbit droppings, and those poos are small, generally quite hard, and they come about because um, a poo that started as a sausage gets cracked and gets dehydrated and stays in the body too long, and eventually you can imagine it's like the little bits of corn coming off the cob. And, and they end up looking like rabbit droppings. So that's a big warning sign that constipation is happening. Um, and then at the other end of the scale is what's referred to as porridge, which is, as you, you know, it's liquid. So neither end of those, you know, is what we would hope to see, yeah, normally happening. And then you get kids who do a little bit of everything. So we sort of, um, 
yeah, just looking at most of them being formed and smooth, but not too wide that it's hard for them to go. And in terms of how often, um, every day or every second day or maybe at a pinch every third day. So we have to put all the factors together. We have to look at what the poo looks like, look at how easy or hard it is for the child to go as well as how often. Yeah, and making sure there's no pain or even some kids get do damage, their poos are so big they will in fact even um, bleed when they go. So that's a bad you know, situation. That's one we want to avoid if we can. Mm, absolutely. Because that will put them off going to the toilet. I know they'll have that negative association with it and they won't come back. Yeah. And then they hold and then it's that whole cycle, not wanting to go, get more constipated. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I suppose the smell too. Sometimes you can get some really rancid smelling foods. In that sense, yeah. smell can be a good indication. Yeah, um, and we, you know, it's a whole new area looking at um, the flora, the bacteria within the, the gut system, and so that's a whole new sort of ball game for us to really understand. But the smell will relate to the bacteria level of what's going on. So there's a lot of other things can go on in there in terms of looking at what's going on absorption-wise, I think, um, just how much bacteria there is. Yeah, so um, there's a lot we know and there's a lot that I think we don't fully know yet. Oh, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And we're only just starting to really touch the tip of the iceberg, I think, about health. <laughs> yes, yeah. All right, well, let's maybe we'll talk a little bit about constipation because this can be a big area of concern and can um, happen quite frequently, um, particularly with kids on the spectrum. They, a lot of them seem to have constipation. Um, what is chronic constipation and what can we do for it? Okay. Well, to be diagnosed with chronic constipation, um, there needs to be two of a number of features and that has to have occurred for a couple of months. So the main features are that poos are not happening very often. So less than three poos in a week is one feature. More than one accident a week would be considered a feature. If the doc, you see a doctor and the doctor can actually feel poos in the child's tummy just when they do a palpation or a feeling, that's a feature. If children withhold their poos, that is a sign. And when they have um there's pain when they go or they do really, really large poos. So they're all the different features and if you can sort of think two or more of those is happening um, and, you know, it's not just a one-off, it's been happening for a couple of months, um, then that, um, yeah, that, that's the definition of it. So what causes, um, causes constipation? The most common cause of constipation is actually children withholding their poos. So it's really interesting and really frustrating, I suppose, that children give themselves constipation more often than not from by withholding. And they withhold maybe there was even just one episode of pain. It only takes one episode. A parent may or may not know that that even happened. And it may not even be pain. The poo may not look large or you know, something that the parent would think should have caused pain, um, but in the child's perception. So that's where the sensory things come in. I've seen many children who say, my poos feel really spiky, and the parent will shake their head and say, there's nothing wrong, there's no spikes, the poos are really smooth. And so I start to see the difference between the child's experience of it, you know, that, and that's what really counts. 
Um, so it's just only one occasion where the child feels they don't like the feeling, then their body just goes into a kind of a self-protection mode and thinks, right, oh, well, that's easy. Well, I, won't, I just won't do that again. And we know infants even under 12 months of age start with holding poos and avoiding poos. So, you know, when I learned that, I was even really surprised that it, it, and it made me realise it's such a reflex thing, you know. It's not something they think long and hard about. It's just like that hurt, I won't do that again. So it um, sort of can happen at quite a young age. Um, other causes of constipation can be a child getting sick and dehydrated. And, again, that might only happen just the once, but then that might have one poo that gets a bit harder. Certain medications occasionally can be the cause of constipation in kids. Um, iron supplements is probably one of the most common ones that um, some kids go on and they can be constipating. And also, of course, changes in routine, and we all know that, that um, sometimes just travelling um, or going on holidays, um, food's different, but even just the environment being different, can the body can be really sensitive and can just sort of stop um, going so regularly. And then other big events for children can be um, starting kindy or starting school or having a brother or sister born. Um, sometimes other causes of constipation, can it can be a food reaction, um, a sensitivity to a food. We know that dairy is probably the most common trigger for that. We don't have as much evidence about gluten and wheat intolerance, but it's certainly a question that a lot of people ask and perhaps that's something we will know more about over time. And sometimes we can't pinpoint even a particular factor and then um, we find out children have what we call slow transit time. So basically things just move really slowly through their body um, and there are sophisticated tests that um, can, can show that that is in fact the case. There's also hereditary factors as well. So it's not uncommon that if, you know, parents have that sort of issue, slower moving guts than their children will as well. So many, many causes, yeah, sometimes obvious, sometimes not. And I think um, also just we're talking about what is chronic constipation. It might be very obvious. You might see little rabbit dropping poos. You might see really big poos. Um, you might see children lose their appetite, have low energy, seem irritable. Um, their poos might change. They might be smelly or sticky or they might leak. And um, it's really easy to mistake that for diarrhea. Um, or some kids might just start having wetting accidents out of the blue, and that can just be that they're a bit constipated. Or they might start night wetting, and that could be the sign of constipation. Some children are really hardy, and they don't stop eating, and they don't stop running, and they don't stop being happy. So sometimes it's not actually very obvious when a child's um, constipated. So I think it's definitely worth seeing a doctor to, to help know. And, uh, you know, I've often seen kids have an x-ray and parents cannot believe and it's taken an x-ray to show that, yeah, your child is actually constipated. Sometimes kids can be going every day, but they are still constipated. So it's sometimes very easy, but sometimes quite hard to pick. So I think it's always worth getting it looked into properly if you just think things aren't quite right. Absolutely, absolutely. Now you touched just very briefly on soiling. So you were talking yeah. about, um, you know, most of the times we expect to see a child who's constipated with the little rabbit dropping so they're really dark in colour, they're hard, they're small little pebbles. Um, but soiling can also be a sign of constipation. So when 
sort of it's like diarrhea poo comes out and it soiled the the underwear. Can you touch on soiling and and how this happens and why this is actually caused from constipation? Because if I, you know, most parents would see, um, you know, sort of diarrhea and they would think it's diarrhea. Why? Is, how does this relate to constipation? Yeah, that, that's right. Soiling can be, it's always going to be liquid um, in the undies or the nappies. It can be just a, quite a small amount. So sometimes it could just be like they, an older child hasn't wiped themselves properly or it can be quite a large amount. So soiling comes in different quantities. Generally, uh, one of the signs is it's the poo is smelly and just a different consistency to the normal poo. And 95% of the time when a child does that sort of soiling, it is a consequence of being constipated. Occasionally it can be associated not out of constipation, but most of the time it is because of constipation. And that's because the end of the bowel gets stretched when the poo sits in there too long and the liquid poo moves around and leaks out. When the bowel's been stretched, the nerves uh, don't work very well, so they don't know that the have no aware, children have no awareness that the poo is leaking out, um, that, and they may not feel it once it's happened. So, um, yeah, it's something that's out of a child's control, and uh, yeah, um, can be confusing initially to, from a parent point of view about what's going on. But if you sort of look at it and you're confused and you think it's diarrhea and you kind of treat them for diarrhea, it's sort of the absolute opposite of what they actually need. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's actually a medical name for that, isn't there? Yes, so encapresis, you might hear soiling referred to as encapresis or fecal incontinence. Yeah, or soiling. So all those things are talking about the same thing. Okay. So if a parent does notice um, the soiling in the underwear or the nappy, what is their first point for? What should they do? Should they go to their doctor? Um, How do they and how do they manage this conservation? How do they clean out the blockage? Yeah, so um, certainly going to see the GP is uh, the number one step um, and going along with the information, as, you know, as much history as you can. Um, it's generally, so the first step is to say, yes, is this constipation? Um, and the doctor will rule out any other more serious reason. There are very, very, very few more, you know, reasons ever found. Um, so, but it is always good that they check that. Um, so then once we've, they've decided, and then to decide is this constipation or not, there are different approaches to that. Some will order x-rays of the tummy and that will be the evidence that they need. Some will order ultrasounds and that will measure the width of the bowel to see if it's stretched or not. And others prefer not to use those sort of investigations, but they'll just listen to the history and um, make a judgment call on that. But once they've said yes, you know, we think this is constipation, the first and most important step of the process is to have a bowel washout to clear out all the poo that's been sort of being stored up inside. Um, and this is no easy undertaking. This involves increasing using quite high doses of poo softener, stool softener, to eventually make all the poos liquid so that everything is cleared out. The process is not a fast one either. It um, can take up to 10 days um, to occur and it 
if there's already some accidents going on, they will certainly likely increase while you're making the poos really soft and runny. There'll be a lot of urgency, so it will involve the child generally being at home for at least a week so that there's, they're close to the toilet and all of that can be managed. So it's quite, quite an undertaking. Um, also, it can be hard from the point of view of getting a child to drink the amount of softener that they need to. Um, but it's a really important starting point. Um, but if treatment stops at that point, body loves to just go back to how it was before. So chances are um, the body will go back to a constipated state within a week or two straight away. So step number one is to have a washout. But step number two, which is equally important, is to stay on what's called a maintenance dose of softener, and that is enough softener to empty out the bowels every day, um, making it even softer than a sausage, making it more like wet cement consistency, um, and keep that happening really consistently for a minimum of six months. Um, and that comes as a shock. To a lot of people, um, a, lo a lot of people think softener is something you just use for a few days to get the body going. Um, a lot of um, people aren't too keen on and on having their children on a softener, but um, that second step of maintaining the bowel it gives the bowel time to recover, and then it gives a time for the nerves to start to work really, really well. So then the aim after that is to reduce the softeners and have enough fibre and fluid and exercise to keep to keep the bowel going. So, um, Can I just ask, what about um, enemas? Like, is that, I don't know if that's something that's done with kids. Is that something that you yeah. use or that you've had kids yeah. use? Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you read anything from different countries around the world, especially the United States, enemas is standard treatment in, in this area. Um, in Australia... It's not um, the first kind of choice, the first option. So most doctors, um, I should say probably the specialists, prefer to avoid using the enemas. Um, but you will, I will hear that they are used um, in various situations. I, I, I think to be used, if children are very fearful and anxious and have had a lot of pain, we do want to avoid anything else that will... Um, yeah, make them any more uncomfortable about their bottoms. So, um, you know, it logically it makes sense to avoid it. But um, so I think it's, you know, it's case per case that some kids need kind of um, help to unplug them from the bottom end because to clear them out from the top is a slow process. And if kids are avoiding letting their poos out, um, you know, it, it is a, it's a hard process, yeah. So generally, yeah, enemas aren't kind of first go-to, but... Occasionally are used, yeah. Good to know. Sorry, so that was the second step maintaining. Was there a third step? Um, the, other, yeah, the third option is just um, to have a rescue plan. So um, using a maintenance dose is not the same every single day. Our bodies are different. What we eat is different. How much we drink and dehydrate varies. So um, it's important to... Um, be flexible about how much softener a child needs to, to have them going every day. But it's not uncommon to have relapses, um, especially if there's like a camping trip um, or a holiday or some major events. And you need to have a rescue plan ready where you're going to increase the dose um, to get them back on track. So they're the, they're the three steps and then a phasing out mm -hmm. process. Yeah. And, and what, are, what are other 
things that parents can be doing. So what are other um, strategies parents can be using at home to try and encourage back to a living process? Yeah. So I think the first thing is for parents to get themselves um educate themselves I guess self-education is step number one so listening to this podcast is great there are online um, lots of information available online but it's always a question of what do you read who do you believe where do you go to so I um, always recommend the Continents Foundation of Australia they have a wonderful website um, with lots of fact sheets for parents and they have a helpline um, where you can call and talk through your child's situation um, with qualified staff there. So I think, um, yeah, it's really important to be educated and from a parent's point of view, commit to um, using the softeners as consistently as you possibly can and, and, and that sort of thing. So then I think the next step is the child. And many child, children don't really understand what poo is um, and we need to teach them really simply about eating and pooing. And um, there are some really lovely storybooks around and apps um, that will help um, teach children in a really simple way using um, cartoons and pictures. And, um, you know, the public library, if you just search toilet training, um, they will have resources. And if, as well, if you go online or to the app store and you just, um, yeah, search um, toilet training, that's where you will usually find what are some of your favourites, Di? Okay. There's um, a lovely um, animation called Tom's Toilet Triumph, um, which is available from um, the Disability um, Division in South Australia. Um, however, is usually available on YouTube, um, a version of it. And um, that's a lovely, simple cartoon of a little boy and little and his sister, older sister, learning to use the toilet. Um, so I, I find that an absolute um, hit um, for, for many kids. Um, there's another lovely app just called the Human Body, which um, has different digestive, d different body systems, and there's a digestive or digestion system. And um, it's an interactive app where children can simply it just shows that food goes in, it goes through the body, and it and it comes out. So that one has no pressure about toileting. It just shows food goes in, food food goes out. So that's a nice one to train uh -huh. kids. Yeah, I have used that one before with a few kids on the spectrum actually, and they love it because they have been so intense on learning the different body parts and understanding the body um, that it was really encouraging for them. Um, yeah, they loved it. So that's a great yeah. app, the human body. Yes. That's a good one. Um, so, yeah, I mean, most kids are either be interested in a storybook or they'll be interested in a, in a visual, um, yeah, kind of explanation of what's going on. So I think it's important that they they understand. And also some of the storybooks can just help take a little bit of the stress out of, um, yeah, out of uh, the whole topic. And also for parents, not every family, not every individual is all that is comfortable not everyone's, I've been working in the area 30 years, so I, I, I talk about poos and ways, but not everybody's that comfortable with it. And, you know, stories can help a family get a common language, yeah, and start talking about it in a fun sort of way. Yeah. So, um, so what else can parents do? Um, toilet setup is really important, and I think it's fairly Fairly common sense that children have to be comfortable as possible um, on, on the toilet. So a lot of kids will want to in a seat so that they don't um, that they feel really comfortable sitting and they'll want 
a good footstool is really important. Um, we do know that the bowel will empty twice as well if um, some if we are in a squat position. So um, using a footstool with kids, uh, quite a high footstool uh, is an important thing so that um, it helps them empty out fully. Yeah, so that, that toilet, that kind of physical setup is important. But then also the whole toilet room. I mean, our toilets are generally not the most exciting rooms to be in. So simple things like decorating the toilet can make it a more interesting place to spend a little bit of time every day. The cheap shops, the doll shops have the um, wall decals that, you know, you can just um, yeah stick on the wall. What's important about that, I think, is to really involve the your child in that process so help them choose so they're in charge of making the toilet a good a good place um for some children it's important that they can relax when they're on the toilet and distraction is a good way so even adults will pick up a magazine or read something to help relax so we need to look at um what to use for each child to help help them feel comfortable um music can work really well for some kids the other thing in terms of the toilet, we have to look at the environment. If a child's a little bit extra sensitive, consider that sort of factor. So if there's cleaning products that they don't like, thinking about that. Um, yeah, toilet seat, you know, to be mindful that if you're out in the public and the toilet seat's cold or metallic, that are, that's going to be a really, really big issue for some kids. Um, there's some nice little um, VIP poo sprays that you can buy now at the supermarkets in a range of different colours so children can choose, you know, and they, so they can neutralise or, you know, introduce a preferred odour um, into the room. The other thing is if children are really anxious about the toilet, we can go to some of those calming strategies like the big, deep hug before they go to try to settle them and calm them before they have a little sit on the toilet. And um, always being mindful, I guess, the toilet environment being a place of success and being a positive place. And so for some children, the best we can expect for them is just to spend a minute sitting there and that could be their best effort at that point and that effort needs to be rewarded and praised so that they don't feel like they're a failure every time they don't get a wee or poo in the toilet, that they feel like, um, yeah, their effort is acknowledged and, um, yeah, so that they feel a little bit in control of the process along the way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the sensory factors are sometimes so often overlooked. You know, we don't think about what's going on, um, you know, in the toilet environment. You know, it could be the noisy fan. Um, it could be the smells, you know, the what, what texture is the toilet paper. Um, it's a very sensory experience. And, you know, in general, it's a massive life transition going from doing a poo in a nappy where you're so comfortable and that's how they've been doing it their whole life and then yeah. to sit on this seat that could be cold and you might not be so stable on it and um, all these different factors and expect them to do it there. Like it, it's a big life transition for them. Yeah, yeah. And even right down to the actual feeling of going, you know, like we we just don't get that any thought, you know, unless it's a, you know, a really difficult poo and then you give it some thought. But your everyday pooing, you don't give it any thought. But for kids, that feeling um, can be very, very big and not always just a pleasant feeling, even even for a, a regular normal poo may not feel right for them. Yeah, so it's something they have to really get used to, isn't it? Mm, yeah. Absolutely. Um, and in terms of, like, rewards, for toileting, what, what do you use? What do you recommend for that? Yeah. Um, we certainly know that the really big rewards 
don't really um, get the results. So in our location, Stray Zoo is the, the big reward that um, is sometimes used. And um, as much as every ch child here wants to go there, it's too big a reward um, and that's, you know, it's just too far to aim. So we certainly in terms, I think rewards have their place um, just to work on little behaviours along the way. And what that reward might be is so individual. Um, yeah, it might be money for a child. It might be time with their parents or physical affection or um, hugs and, you know, um, that kind of thing. Um, I think most kids have a currency of some sort. It may be a game or a toy that they access only at that time. You know, occasionally I hear from parents saying, there's nothing, there's nothing for my child. There's, there's, they've got everything, you know. But maybe they've got everything, maybe time with their parent might be the thing. Yeah. So I think you have to look. You have to look and, and see, you know. And I think reward charts sometimes help us as parents keep looking for those positive behaviours. Sometimes we drift into seeing what kids aren't doing, but I think rewards systems help us be disciplined at focusing on those little steps. Yeah. Mm, mm, so important. So how do we translate this to school now? So we're talking about at home, you know, when the child's comfortable at home in their own environment, but how do, how do we translate this to school and how do we get teachers on board and, and who do we tell and how, do we have a meeting? How does it look like at school? Yeah, I think, yes, um, it's crucial that the school know what's going on um, from day one. So, you know, I, I have seen various approaches to this and um, the approach of if I don't tell them then there'll be no problem doesn't seem to go so well. So the best approach I think for a child say starting school is to be meeting with the school staff before day one and having them fully informed about what's going on. They need to know where you know what's going on for that child, everything that you've tried and just how you're managing it you know, right at that point. They need to know all that. And then um, then they, I think you need to work out a way to communicate really regularly with the teacher. So if a child hasn't gone, for example, they haven't done a poo that morning and you, you know they'll probably soil at some point during the day. So, you know, on a daily basis there needs to be a good communication system. And that just depends. Different teachers have different preferences. You know, email works for many, but um, there needs to be a, a good system. And likewise, I think as a parent you need to be finding out exactly what's going on for that child during school day. So I think um, being open and sharing information is important. Um, I think another issue is we know many children don't use school toilets. Well, they they, they would rather not. Um, they'll, they'll go as as less as infrequently as they possibly can. I think you know some one study said a third of kids will never poo at school, you know, on the toilet. So that's that's okay for some kids, but some of the kids we're seeing who have extra problems, we really want them to be as comfortable as possible to go at school. So um, one thing we know is that if they're told they have to go during break time with the other hundred kids they will not get the privacy that they need. They'll not get the time that they need to relax. So um, one of the big biggies is to negotiate with the teacher a, a time during class time for the child to have 
some private relaxed time on the toilet um, and that may, for some children, needs to be scheduled in to the routine. Um, I think schools really want to see that parents are doing all they can, like sending in change of clothes and spare undies and all that sort of thing. I think as long as um, schools know that parents are trying and um, they're doing their best outside of school, generally they'll come on board. But I think the other issue too is that it's okay in prep, you know, there's regular toilet times, but as kids progress up through school, it becomes an expectation that kids should toilet at break time only. And so a child with an issue might sit there and even though they've been told they're allowed to go whenever they want to, they might see several other children getting in trouble for asking to go to the toilet. So I think that's one thing that we really need to keep revisiting, making sure that that child knows they really are allowed. Some will just work out a gesture system with the teacher. They might say T or something. You know, they don't have to put up their hand and draw everybody's attention to the fact that they want to go. Um, yeah, so um, it, it, making sure that they feel they really are allowed to go when they need to is important. So important because that can raise those anxiety levels and once, you know, they have that feeling of anxiety and stress, then they're going to hold it even longer, so... So yeah. important. And I think that is such a really a really good suggestion is to have that scheduled break away from the busyness and the hustle and bustle of when everyone else is going. That's that's a really great suggestion. Um, also, I mentioned the Continents Foundation Australia earlier on, and um, they have some lovely resources for schools. So they have a um, a toilet tactics kit. Uh, which a school applies for and they get a little booklet with it and it goes through it. It has a school step through the process of looking at how nice their toilets actually are and um, it has education information for teachers. Um, and also the Continents Foundation Australia has a lovely webinar for teachers. I think it's about 30 minutes in length and it goes through common bowel and bladder difficulties that children have and it probably challenges some of those practices of restricting children during the school day so there certainly is information around as you know if school are open to, to having a look yeah I think that's important and I think it's actually really important that the parents even go in and have a look at the toilets because I went into my daughter's just started in prep or transition and um the, the toilet rolls are massive, so they're really heavy. So when you try and pull down one little bit of toilet paper, it rips off it and you only get the tiny little bit of toilet paper and the paper thin. Yeah. And it, it's really hard to actually pull the toilet paper off the roll. Um, you need quite big muscles to get it, but you have to be delicate enough so you don't you don't break it. Um, yeah, yeah. So that, that's so, interesting. Yeah, but just... Challenge a school to go through and review their toilet setup is um, can be a really useful thing for a lot of you know, all the children. Yeah, and you know I've had seen children who may have seen an insect at some point, you know, or cobwebs or those sorts of things that can happen. And you know, sometimes we negotiate for children to use a different toilet. Sometimes there's a disabled toilet or even a staff toilet that is can be a whole lot nicer than the regular toilet. Now, some kids don't go for that because they don't want to be seen as different to everybody else, but for some kids that's a, a welcome option to, especially if nobody's around seeing them use that toilet. That might make all the difference as well, yeah. Great. Okay, let's jump over to wheeze because um, we've been speaking about poos um, for a little bit now. So let's talk about wee and kids who just can't seem to hold their wee in. All right. So um, 
the medical term is enuresis, and that simply means bedwetting. Um, and this is the most common issue, so we perhaps that's the first one to think about. And that's um, recognised as a problem from seven years and up, as we mentioned earlier. Now, why do children, some children, wet their bed after the age of seven? Well, firstly, it's a strong genetic link, a very strong link um, with parents or, or aunts and uncles and cousins. Um, but it's not such a strong link that if a parent was dry at, say, age 14, that, you know, it doesn't relate that the child's going to wet until they're age 14, but the fact that they were delayed in, in, in getting dry at night is a really big one. Another sneaky reason for bedwetting is, in fact, constipation, and some research has shown that 50% of children with bedwetting have constipation. Now, by the time we're talking kids who are seven, Parents don't always know what's going on with their poos anymore. So that often comes as a huge surprise to parents. And I don't think that constipation necessarily needs to be major. You may not have soiling like we talked about before, but you might just have a child who goes every two to three days. It takes a little bit more effort. So it might be what you might consider mild. But in their little bodies, um, the thinking is that the bowel and bladder sit next to each other and if the bowel's pushing over, there's less room for the bladder. So constipation is a biggie. Another interesting factor is snoring and um, some children will need to go see an um, ENT specialist. and have. It. So if, the, if a child is a snorer, there's a link between that and bedwetting. I think the snoring um, affects the sleep quality and that affects the child's ability to respond to their bladder. But there's a link there. But then there are other three factors. One is deep sleeping patterns plus <clears throat> there's a hormone called vasopressin that the brain releases every night and it tells the kidneys to slow down and work at about half pace. So once that hormone kicks in, the need to go to the toilet during the night sort of is um, reduced. So that's why, you know, when kids start to just be dry in the morning, that's probably why it's the hormone that has, has um, started working so they don't have to hold a great amount of weight overnight. But that hormone starts working at different ages for different individuals and that's probably the genetic link. So if mum or dad or aunt, uncle and aunt was slower, it's probably because the, that hormone kicked in at a different time. But it's a combination effect. If you don't have that hormone, so you've got a lot of wheat, and the sign that you, the hormone's not working is that the wetting is huge. It's flooding capacity. Um, so that's, that's a big sign that the kidneys are working really hard overnight rather than relaxing. But if you've got that and you're a deep sleeper, you're not going to wake up when your blood is full. So you're kind of, you know, a little bit stuck there. And then the third factor is um, a small bladder capacity. So that is a bladder that is not very good at holding up a lot of weight. So if you have a small bladder capacity, you're not going to last the night, especially if your kidneys are still making lots of weight. You're not going to get that. And the sign that you've got a small bladder capacity at night time will be that kids will wee more than once. So their parents will change them and they'll have to change them again and maybe again. So that's the sign. Um, another sign might be the child goes really frequently during the day and does little, little wees. So that's another factor. So night wedding, there's a whole lot, you know, there's many, many reasons to explain what's going on. And treatment um, will be, depend on, you know, be different for every child. But treatment will, for net, night wedding will always start with bowels. So the first step will always be do a bowel diary for a couple of weeks, find out what's going on. And if they're not working really smoothly, treat that. 
The next step for night wedding will be check out what the blood is doing during the day, which means keeping a diary of how much a child drinks and how much measuring their weeds and just seeing, in fact, are they what you'd expect for that age. And um, if they're going way too often, we need to try to normalise what's going on. We want to make sure that the bladder works really well during the day. So we want to make sure that they drink at least a litre of fluid and that a lot of that drinking should happen before lunch, which is not the case for many kids, especially once they're at school. They come home with a fairly full water bottle and they'll catch up at the end of the day. And so then their kidneys have a lot of work to do and there's a lot of weeing going to happen in the, the later part of the day when they're tired. So... Um, for a good bladder, we want to make sure that they're um, drinking a whole lot, uh, drinking a good litre, a lot of it's happening in the morning, and that they're going no more than seven times in a 24-hour period, but not less than four times. So between four and seven is the normal number of times. Um, and this is something that people will need to go and get extra help to really analyse. So I'll just give you the general, I guess, um, broad broad um, idea of what we need to look at. So we make sure the bowels are working. We get the bladder working really well during the day. And if we've done that and we've done that and we've still got a lot of night wedding going on and the child's really affected by it, if the child's not affected by it, we don't do anything because it doesn't tend to work. But if the child's starting to get upset, wants to have sleepovers, camps and things, then we look at how to just treat the night wedding. And there are two options. One option is a bed wedding alarm and it will teach the child when their bladder is full overnight and uh, interestingly one or two things will happen. They'll learn to wake at night to go when their bladder is full. But interestingly sometimes kids will eventually learn to just hold on until morning time. So the bladder alarm works really well in 80% of cases um, but involves a lot of um, sleep disruption um, for a child plus a supporting parent. Um, we sometimes hear bed alarm was tried and didn't work and we say why and it was well the child didn't wake up and that's sort of part of the course. The child's bedwetting, they're a heavy sleeper, they're probably not going to wake up. So to use alarm effectively you need to commit a couple of months to the process and a parent needs to be there um, at least for the first few weeks to wake up their child. So that is not an option for everybody, um, but for those that it is an option for, it's a very successful thing and has a fairly permanent result. But if that's not the case, the other way to go is to take a medication to slow the kidneys down at night. That's called minerin, and that can be a spray or a wafer under the tongue, and that just works for one night. So if you, um, you it has a really nice place for a sleepover or for camp, it just, just tells the kidneys to slow overnight. Um, for older kids who are really upset about the whole thing, they can take it every night. Um, it doesn't make a permanent change. So if they're using it every night, every three months, usually they have a break and find out are they actually better yet? And if they're not, they can go back on it. Um, so that's, that's a really different kind of option. But generally what works best is what the family feels, which, which of those ways would work. You can wait and just see if it gets better, but you don't know if your child's one who's going to get better next year or years later. And we know kids' self-esteem is very much affected and they just their confidence when when this persists too long. Yeah. Wedding is a hard one, isn't it? Because they're not conscious. They, they don't, you can't teach them strategies like we can with the poo and, and using the toilet. So it's no. a real difficult one to, to tackle. 
There is a little bit of um, evidence that positive self-talk before bedtime is worth trying. So the idea of saying not I'm going to wake up dry because that's a little bit kind of magical thinking, you know, but when my bladder gets full, I'm going to wake up. Or when my bladder gets full, I'm going to hold on till morning time. And um, there's a certain percent of kids who just putting that into their subconscious can have a positive improvement. You want to be careful, though. You don't want to set a child up. You know, it needs to be that option, I think, needs to go along. Uh, let's do an experiment. That's a fairly easy thing that puts the child in charge. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I have learned so many tips and tricks just from this conversation here with you today it's it's, I'm sure the parents who are listening in today have too there are so many different um strategies and I think things to be mindful of when we're looking at poos and wheeze with kids Um, yeah so many there's a lot lot of um, myths around too I think which can be really confusing for parents you know and a lot of parents will tell us they've just been told don't worry, your child will grow out of it or they're being a bit lazy. There's a lot of thinking around those sort of ideas and, yeah, I think it's great if parents can get a little bit more facts about, about what's going on. Yeah, so that child's not put in a position of being in trouble for it or blamed for it. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It's just, yeah, I've seen it and it's so hard because the little kids, you know how anxious they are when they are they have that self-awareness and they have to go to school and face this every day, it can be just an absolutely horrible experience for them. So if we can try and support them and try and use different strategies and looking at how the schools can support them, how we can support them at home and make the toilet a really positive environment, looking at the sensory side of things, looking at them and their motor control, just taking a really holistic approach, I suppose, in terms of toileting and who's who's on your team, I suppose, in terms of professionals as well. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, let's wrap it up and we'll head to the five rapid-fire questions now. Okay. So question number one is what is one habit our listeners can implement today? All right. I would say to take the time to look up the Continents Foundation Australia website. Have a look on there um, and see what information you can um, find for you as a parent um, some information for your child and some information to take to school or childcare. I think that's that's really worth worth doing. Get get the facts. Yeah, education. Yep. Great. Number two, what do people never ask you that you wish they did? Okay, I sometimes think that parents feel fairly toilet training your child and and is a very important part of being a successful mother. So I guess if we look at the other way around, I think. Um, many might feel that they somehow have failed on some level as a parent. Um, And um, I guess the question I wish people ask is, actually, is it my fault? Is there something that I've done wrong? I think that sort of underlies a lot of parents' feelings. I kind of feel it, you know. It's important that, um, and, and so parent, we know parents lose confidence very, very quickly. And so I think it's important that um, they don't feel confused and frustrated and disheartened, uh, you know, um, without kind of um, expressing that. Um, it's important that they stay positive. And I suppose to stay positive, you have to believe that it's not, not, not all your fault. It's not, it's not your doing. And it's a really, it's a complicated kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the parents should get support. And, um, yeah, and get the right advice from people who know. 
you know what they're saying. So positive frame of mind, and once the parents have it, it it can definitely yeah throughout the family. Yeah, everybody can relax. Yeah. Yeah. What what book would you recommend that all parents read? All right. It's hard to pick just one. There is lots of really good books out. There's a lovely book which is for children, but I think it's almost more powerful for parents called I Can't, I Won't, No Way um, by Tracy Vesselois, V-E-S-S-I-L-L-O-I-S, and it's about the very common situation of a child refusing to do poos on the toilet. And, you know, basically um, the child says, I don't know why, because I think a lot of us searching for why, 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 and sometimes there just is no why, and the child just says, can it not be a race, you know, which it, it just sort of puts us back in the child's world of, of what it's what it's like. So I think that's a, a lovely little book with a um, a good message for parents to to remember not to get caught up in the toilet training race. Um, but I also have to say there's a book called Gut, the inside story of the body's most underrated organ. And um, it's a book that, if you like reading, it's written in a very friendly manner and it goes into some of all the latest research about the gut and about the microbiomes and, um, you know, the whole ins and outs. But it, it's very readable but very scientific at the same time. So, yeah, I think they're both really good books for parents. Yeah, yeah. so ones to read with your child and ones to read at night time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, great. Question number four is what is one of your top unfinished bucket list items? All right. Well, as you mentioned earlier, we do run parent workshops here on the coast, Pondering Poos and Wondering About Weeks. And um, we've been running these for maybe 15 years. We started them originally on the Gold Coast. And I um, we started them because parents – we're not accessing the information that they needed at the right point in their child's journey. And also parents, I think, felt pretty isolated and because it's not a topic you can talk about at a party or a barbecue. So we just found it such a powerful thing to bring parents together into a room and to give them all the latest, all the information that we possibly can. We can tell them where to go to for more but even more than that, they just sit and realise they're not alone. And I guess so my unfinished bucket list, list, I'd love to see that option available more widely for families in areas other than just the Sunshine Coast, yeah, because I really believe in it. We've just finished a research project that showed some beautiful positive results to children's quality of life and parents' sense of competence simply by parents attending the workshop. And we found the results were similar to parents who went to a hospital-based, individualised, multidisciplinary clinic. So coming to a workshop was just as powerful as having a one-on-one consultation. So, you know, we believe that it's quite an effect, cost-effective way to, you know, to from a providing point of view, bring everybody together. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, too, it's just that parent support, like you said, knowing that there are other kids and families who are going through similar issues. Issues, And even um, I find when parents start to talk, you know, at the end of a conference or something like that, that yeah. they get tips and advice from each other, you know, and that can be sometimes the most valuable um, yes. people who are living that experience and who have tried different things and Sometimes parents come up with better things than the therapist, you know, that we come up with. Um, they, they have yeah. a different way of seeing it. 
Yeah. Yes. Every time we run a workshop, I learn something new. I hear something that somebody's read or tried or done. So, yeah, I am, um, yeah, a big believer of the power of that. Yeah. Oh, that would be great. Well, hopefully, um, yeah, we can get that out across Australia because it's definitely needed. It's not something, you know, it's something that many parents um, are going through with their child. So, yeah. it would be amazing. Yeah. All right. Last uh, question number five. If you could only offer one piece of advice to parents, what would it be? Yeah. Um, hard to pick again, but I think I said a long saying to form a team with your child through the toileting issues. So um, once you feel that you're both playing in the, in the game together, I think that the experience will be um, a lot more successful. And if you feel that, you know, your child's just not trying, they're just not, not working with you, they're against you, that's a sign to me you're not, not playing together on the same team. So working through that process to come together um, and work, work through it. So more about supporting your child, um, then I think that's probably there's something really, really powerful in doing that. And you will get there no matter how long your journey is, but I think your experience for both of you will be um, a little bit more uh, comfortable, yeah, should I say. Mm, yeah. yeah, and it's about being mindful of your own frustration and experience as well, I think, as a parent. Um, you want things to push along, but you have to be on yeah, the same team because um, yeah. it's not going to help, um, yeah, getting angry and frustrated. Um, and I guess to do, you will hear a lot of advice from other people, you know, maybe extended family members or, or you know, people in the education setting or where, or just the community. And you as a parent have to sort of be strong, I guess, in your own space um, with your child and uh, advocate for your child back out. You know, they're not ready. This is what they're ready to do. Yeah. Yeah, so important. So important. I love it. Okay, how can our listeners find out more about you and your amazing work? Right. Um, I do now have a website, so I have a web presence. So um, it's under Die Collis. If you search that, you should find the website. Um, yeah. So I C O double L I S. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Di, for being with us today. You are an amazing OT, and you're doing some really amazing things um, for our profession. It's so wonderful to connect with you. Um, so thank you for that and thank you for spending the time with us today. Thanks, Rihanna. It's been a pleasure. Cheers. Thank well, you. Thanks. I hope that today's show has resonated with you in some way and I hope that you have been inspired to take action and make positive change from home base. If there is someone you know who would benefit from this podcast, please share it. And I would love for you to join our home base Hope community. You can do this by subscribing to this podcast. All you have to do is head on over to iTunes and hit the subscribe button and every fortnight you will get an instant notification of the latest interview. If you do like this show, please jump on iTunes and leave a five-star review so more people can discover us and so we can inspire positive change in more people living on the spectrum. If you do leave a five-star review, please take a screenshot and send it to info at homebasehope.com.au with the subject line free ebook and I will send you a copy of our awesome ebook Understanding Behaviours. In this book, I show you how to manage challenging behaviours at school, at home and in therapy. 
I talk about the differences between tantrums, meltdowns and button pushing. And I also arm you with practical strategies you can start using today. You can access all of the show notes and other episodes at homebasehope.com.au. So until next time, I encourage you to open your mind, respect the differences and above all, believe that you can make a difference from home base. See you soon, guys. This year, the Wellness Summit returns. I realised in this time that I couldn't keep waiting for love from other people. I couldn't keep expecting love from other sources. But I had to give that to myself. Yanni says, I don't care if everyone says that the kitchen is the woman's world. He says, I'm going to prepare food. I love my own cheese. I love my own wine. I don't care what you think of my new flat screen TV. He just loves company. I started asking myself more often, what do I want? Such a simple question, isn't it? But when you think that, and I'm sure all of you sitting there, when you think that, something springs into your mind. And there's something there that you want that you haven't been doing for yourself. Brett Hill and Marcus Pierce feature at the 2018 Wellness Summit. Bigger and better than ever. Tickets on sale Friday, May 4 at thewellnesssummit.com. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.